Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Playsheet Podcast. I'm Charles, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Joe. Hey there, Charles. Hey, Joe. I tell you what, why don't we jump straight into it this week, and let's start off recapping Monday's game, because we had the Browns and the Steelers, and look, the Steelers were your team that you predicted as having a bit of an upset last week. This week, they came out, they did the job against the Browns, but the Browns had some horrific luck with regards to Chubb. Um, what does this mean for the Browns? And where do you think the Steelers go from here? Yes, yeah, huge for the Browns. We spoke about the Aaron Rodgers injury in excessive detail last week, so don't want to touch on that again. But this is a similar kind of injury in the sense that it's just going to take all the wind out of the Browns' sails. A lot of talking heads have been talking about Deshaun Watson, Brown's quarterback, and basically saying that he's playing with rustiness. How long do they think it's going to take to get this rustiness off? Yes, he missed the season, but every other quarterback in the National Football League has basically just had all of the summer off. So everyone should be rusty to the same degree. You can't just keep on saying Deshaun Watson is rusty. So they don't have quarterback play at a high enough level to A, take them to playoffs, or B, make them a particularly competitive team. They're another team without Nick Chubb. Um, well, I mean, look, we talked about it last year and we accepted that rustiness might have been an issue because he came into a new team partway through the season. Like, that's the expectation. But now he's been with them from the start. He's had plenty of opportunity to learn the playbook. They've not been massive overhaul in terms of personnel at the Browns. So he'll have worked with a lot of the people that he's working with this year, last year. Like there is no excuse for this. And just to poke into some of his stats here, through two weeks, he is 359 yards. He's 37 completed passes out of 66 attempted. Two touchdowns, two interceptions, and a passer rating of 69.05. Yeah, so that's a terrible passer rating. In terms of completions, basically just above 50%. Two for two TDs on, and interceptions. Poor, right? Poor. Really um, bad. But this is the point, right? He came back mid last season. So you can say at that point, rustiness can be an issue. When every other quarterback exactly. in, like, in the league has had preseason, has played matches, etc., etc. You've had all of training camp, you've had all of the off-season, you haven't played since, like I said, January, February, like everyone else, you can't use rustiness as the excuse anymore. So every talking head talking about Deshaun Watson's rustiness, give over. That's not what it is. It's He's he's just n simply not playing at the levels he previously played at. Be that because he's not got the same offensive coordinator, be that because he doesn't have the personnel around him that he had at Houston that worked for him, whatever it is, he is not that same player. Nick Chubb, Nick Chubb was something of a unicorn in that he was a high-performing running back who basically just got his head down and got on with a job. He wasn't someone who, you know, was constantly banging on for extensions, uh, you know, lockouts, all those kind of things. I've, I feel like Nick Chubb was a football player's, what I'm saying was in past tense, he's not finished, he's finished for a season in his career. Nick Chubb is a football player who's a football player's football player. Gets a job done in an efficient manner, plays hard, plays fair. Not many people have a bad word to say about Nick Chubb. With the quarterback play being as bad as it was, he was going to leave his team. You know, response again supports the narrative that we previously said about 
not paying running backs because they're always an injury away and you can get other people to come in. But the kind of counter argument to this is that it's unlikely anyone is going to come in and play to the level that Nick Chubb was playing at. Yeah, I mean, did you see the injury, Joe? I did. And actually, this is just something that I wanted to bring up with you, Charles. My wife, she watches the games with me, as you know. Uh, She hates when they replay the injuries. It's not something you normally see on kind of UK TV. If there's an injury, unless you saw it live, you ain't seen it again. American football, of course, they'll show it from every angle just so you can get the right freeze frame when that tibia is snapping. This injury, they basically didn't re-show. Now, they showed it in the stadium, and basically there were lots of groans and grimaces in the stadium when we replayed it, but it didn't get replayed live on TV. Do you think that's something that we're going to see more of, Charles? Or do you think that just that's how bad this injury was for that this is almost an exception mate i don't even know because i heard about how horrific it was and how they refused to show the replay on tv and i have stayed the hell away from that footage yeah knees are ones that always just make you vomit inside a little bit because knees should only ever go one way and as soon as they go that other way <laughs> ain't no one want to see that the fear is though that this is the same knee that yep he dislocated, MCL'd, ACL'd, PCL'd, whatever CL'd back in 2015. Yeah, they had to totally rebuild it when he was at Georgia. Like, that's a concern, potentially. That's just it. Like, one ACL, you go back 10 years ago and you didn't come back from an ACL. I think Adrian Peterson, Rudy, was the first running back to do his ACL and then managed to come back and play, not just play, but play at a high standard. Until Adrian Peterson, it had almost never been done. ACL was, it was like when a horse breaks its leg. You're going behind the fence, and you're going to the glue factory. Over those last 10 years, more and more players have come back and played at a high standard after an ACL. Nick Chubb had a severe, severe injury at Georgia, like you said. I wasn't being kind of facetious when I was listing off all those things. It was a dislocated knee, ACL, MCL, PCL. His knee was hanging on by a thread. They managed to repair him. They Steve Rogered him. Can they do it a second time? It's limited what you can work with. So hugely concerning for his longer-term prospects. Is it a retirement injury? Probably no. He'll probably want to do all he can to you know, recover on it. But I think when it happens the second time as well, if you manage to mentally get over it the first time, would you get over it a second time mentally? Will you still put as much pressure on that knee? Will you still trust that knee like you did previously? And I think that's one of the hardest things uh, to come back from like um, when you have an injury like this. Mm. Well, look, at the moment, Chubb is that Browns team. As we've discussed, Watson is not playing efficient enough level quarterbacking for this Browns to be anything else other than their run game. There's a part of me that's almost slightly delighted that this has happened because it's it's just going to highlight what a stupid, insane move it was for the Browns to go chasing Deshaun Watson. And I'm sure pretty much most of the NFL fan base is delighted in the outcome of that front. But, oh, horrific injury. And I just, I think the Browns are done for the for the season. I'm not that we had any major expectations of where they were going to go from here, but I mean, they just don't stand a chance without Chubb, I don't think. From a Steelers' point of view, though, Joe, were you impressed with what you saw there? Or was that just as, as a result of the fact that Watson's playing poorly, Chubb got injured? I mean, what where do you think they stand this season? Well, just going back to one thing you said a moment ago, 
I think basically the Browns are the Denver Broncos right now. And that's the Denver Broncos as they exist right now and as they existed last year in the f- fact that they had a top 10 defense. And this Browns defense, you know, with Miles Garrett, Denzel Ward, some of the players they have, I think this Browns defense has the potential, I'm not saying it has played to the standard, but it has the potential to be a top five defense. You know, they shut the Bengals out week one. This is a defense that can ball. It, it, it can hang with the best of them. It'll keep them in games. They won't have the offense, though, to finish things off. So they're not going to be, don't get me wrong, they're not going to be a three-win, four-win team. They'll probably fall somewhere now between six and eight wins and probably just miss out on uh, playoffs. The Steelers, the Steelers is a hard one for me. I thought they might cause an upset against the 49ers erroneously because I thought that the 49ers could be there for the taking with all the off-field stuff that was going on in terms of contracts, in terms of pressure on Purdy, those kind of things. My prediction wasn't so much on the Steelers being a good team. I still do not think that Kenny Pickett is top half in terms of quarterbacks. He's probably bottom quartile. So do I think that they're going to do particularly well? No. They've got game wreckers on the defensive side. You know, TJ Watt, he's up there probably in the top three most disruptive defensive players in the league. I'm going to say TJ Watt. Um, Michael Parsons and Nick Bosa. Those three are probably currently your elite defensive players. And when you've got one of those in your team, it just makes such a difference. Again, the defense will make them hang with teams and they probably won't get blown out very much. They'll probably, you know, be in some tight games. But offensively, I just, I'm just not convinced whatsoever. Do you see it differently or do you see it the same? No, but I think that's a very fair assessment. Why don't we pan out slightly and take a sort of a wider look at, at the AFC North as a whole? I mean, Ravens at the top, Steelers, Browns, middling, as we've kind of just discussed. That's probably our expectation of where they might end up. Bengals at the very bottom of the group. I mean, surely nobody was calling that going into week one. No one was calling it. Are they a bad team? No. Have they improved very much from last season? Probably not enough. But are they a playoff quality team? Yes, they are. I think it's very hard as an outsider who's not in the team facility to know how healthy Joe Burrow is in terms of the injuries sustained on his calf. Now, that's not enough to excuse them from not having a better record than Owen 2 through the first two games. But at this stage, I think there's enough from what I've seen to make me think that this offense can still perform really effectively. You know, with Jamar Chase still in the team, he's not really started his season yet. We've not really seen much from him. T. Higgins returned to form in the last week. I'm not ready to give up on this Bengals team in any kind of way. I don't think that's very sensible. Will they get to Super Bowl again? I feel that that window may be closing, and that perhaps has closed right now. Paying Joe Burrow the bag, it's suddenly a lot, lot harder to be a GM and make this team work. And there are still roster gaps. They don't have as much strength on the defensive side of a ball as you'd want from a championship winning team. So yeah, that's not me saying I'm a fence at all. It's just me saying that, yeah, there's more to come. Yeah. And look, let's put things into perspective a little bit. It's easy to look at that 0-2 record and start slamming the panic button. But the Ravens, you know, they're a really solid team and the Bengals lost 24-27. It's not like they were blown out by them. They hung in there. Joe Burrow, 
Okay. I mean, it's just the thing that worries me the most is like how few completions he's making compared to his attempts. But we know he's carrying this calf issue. But like you said, some of those other players started showing up a little bit more. You know, the resurgence of T. Higgins, Jamar Chase, you know that connection with Burrow is going to click at some point this season. And as we've just discussed, the Steelers and the Browns, they're very sort of middling teams and they've got their own kind of offensive issues that, that are going to cap their ceiling. At the very least, you're expecting the Bengals to come back and fill that second spot in the division. Yeah, and just to touch on something that you said, about it, I don't think that Burrow's completion percentage is necessarily the issue. Like, he completed 27 of 41 attempts. That's, what, 66%, which... It's not stellar. It's not above 70%. It's not amazing. But I mean, 66% is relatively average. It's not the percentage. I think it's his average yards per attempt that I think is perhaps more concerning right now. He's averaging 5.4 yards per attempt, which just isn't good enough. They're not making plays work. They're not getting separation down the field. There's a lot of kind of shorter plays that we're seeing happen. He's coming under a lot of pressure still. I mean, he's avoiding sacks. But look, let's see where it goes, Charles. Um, 0-2, I think we've always agreed on this pod that through two weeks, you can't judge a team for the rest of the season. I know I have with the Browns. I'm going to stick with that when I'm making an exception for the Browns. But let's make a bit of a harsher judgment after week three, perhaps. Okay, I'm very glad you've mentioned that because I just want to sort of flit over to a few other divisions and just highlight some of the positioning of the other teams here. Uh, and again, you've just got to say, hey, look, it's week two. There's still a lot of football left to play and anything can happen. But, and a lot, I need to sort of asterisk this. Some of these kind of first place in divisions, they're tied records. But did anyone have the Raiders top of the AFC West? God, I don't think anyone had the Raiders top of the AFC West. But hey, it's Jimmy G, isn't it? And we're just living in his world. <laughs> I don't think the Raiders will be as bad as coming bottom of their division, but they're not going to be in the first two spots. I'm going to say that. I still think we're going to see more from the Chargers. They've been very close. They've been very Chargerish in how they've lost games and just made silly mistakes, snatching losses from the jaws of victory. But this is a high-powered Chargers team still, and with a very good secondary defense. So, Chargers will win games. We know the Chiefs are going to win games. It's the Broncos who I think uh, they need to be concerned about. I mentioned, I think, in a pre-season podcast that Russell Wilson couldn't get worse. I didn't expect that he wouldn't get any better whatsoever. And I think that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's so true. Like, like I thought we might see a little bit of improvement there. But I think the frustration you can see in Sean Payton now, comments that he made, he said something about how he needs to get better, how Russell Wilson needs to tighten things up. Sean Payton's not thinking that he's the problem. He's saying that in very much coach speech. Um you can see him having the frustrations that Nathaniel Hackett had last season with Wilson. It's almost vindicated that for him. Wilson seems to be finished. And that's why the Broncos are going to come fourth in that division. Yeah. Look, there's a few other places elsewhere. I always find it weird 
uh, certainly in recent years when I see the Falcons heading up their division. But, I mean, we've pointed out time and time again, the NFC South is not particularly rife with competition at the moment. You could arguably see any one of those teams coming out of their division top. Yeah, but aren't three teams 2-0 in that division? Yeah, they are. Yeah, Falcons, Saints and Bucks. So you've got to be fair, three teams are 2-0. and And Tampa Bay, all right, they've played two NFC North teams. The Vikings can score points and they held them to 17 points. The Bears, you know, people were still trying to hype up Justin Fields before the season started. And they they made him look pretty, pretty pants. Tampa Bay have beat what's in front of them and they've quietly been getting on with things. So I don't really want to call that division at all. I, I think we need to see a lot more of each of those teams, see them play against stronger teams, see them play against weaker teams, see what they're really all about. But uh, the one thing I will agree with you is that you know any team could potentially win that one. Yeah. All right. So looking at the bigger picture, Joe, let's look in on the super fine details of some of the games. Let's talk about that special teams play from the Pats, the blocked field goal. I mean, that was great play. Yeah, that was an incredible play. Shula timed things to perfection, almost like he knew the exact moment the ball was going to be snapped, timed his run, came basically out of nowhere in terms of how we were looking at it from a TV because he came from so far wide. That was the thing that blew my mind because he was almost on the the sideline and he flew in and made the block. Like, when you look at it on the TV, you're thinking, I was like, what are you doing out there? Like, what's your play here? Are you just an extra man? I don't understand how he got over so quickly. Yeah, so a couple of things to break down here, right? When you're in that position, what you're normally looking at when the ball's getting snapped, you're looking at the center, and you're looking at clues from the center as to when he's going to snap the ball. Shula wasn't looking at the center whatsoever. If you go back and look at the video, and I would recommend anyone who hasn't seen this play to go and look at it on YouTube, Twitter, wherever you get you source it from. But even if you have, look at it and look at it from this angle. Now, Shula wasn't looking at the center to see when the ball was going to be snapped. He was looking at the holder. Do you know where, Charles? Because of his behavior, because he looks back at the kicker, then he signals to the snapper right to play the ball so it's you get that indication one little bit earlier well he doesn't signal but he gives away a read the read that he gave was he almost breathed out (laughs) yeah 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 and do you know why the patriots knew what this read was no i don't actually so the holder for the dolphins is jake bailey who drafted Jake Bailey in 2019, uh, round five, pick Pats. 163? <laughs> exactly. He's an ex-Pats player, so they probably may have been aware of this read. And yeah, and they went and did it. But the ramifications of this, it's very easy to just say it was a great play, go and watch it, wasn't that great, isn't football great, don't we love it? The ramifications of this extend beyond this play, though, because they tried it again later when they were going for a field goal. It was a 55-yard field goal. And basically, 55 yards is not a gimme whatsoever. But the field goal was absolutely shanked. Now, this time Shula didn't get home. But it, it basically put a fear of God into them. And he shanked by some way. It disrupted future plays. And that's how effective this play was. It didn't just get them points in the terms of they recovered a punt and then went and scored a touchdown from that play. 
it also saved three points. This was a 10-point play. So, yeah, really worth talking about, really worth looking, and really worth looking at that detail to see where the eyes were of Schuler and trying to spot that read from Jake Bailey when he was holding. Nice. So to finish off, Joe, I think we discussed this briefly before the podcast, but let's chat about Eric Bieniemy because, and this is, we need to discuss both, I suppose, the current performance of the Chiefs and even potentially now the current performance of the Commanders. Yeah, and so Bieniemy is a coach who we've talked about in some detail on the show previously. It always felt almost crazy that you could be the offensive coordinator of the Kansas City Chiefs, arguably the elite blue ribboned offense of the last five years, the last decade, three Super Bowl appearances, two Super Bowl wins, Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill previously, Travis Kelsey, they were just dangerous, a, a, a great offense. And for that offensive coordinator to then not be able to go and get a head coach job time and time again, not just once, not just twice, a time and time again. We've spoke about it previously and from outsiders, people talk about racism. If you're going to look at examples of where coaches have not got what they perhaps deserve because of racism, this would be probably one of the places you'd start thinking, hey, there's a bit of smoke here. But, you know, we always said perhaps there's reasons that we're not aware of. Perhaps it's not as black and white as that. The enemy, uh, you know, ultimately left the Chiefs, went to the Washington Commanders, where he is an offensive coordinator. Now, one of the arguments that was given for him not deserving a head coach role was the claim that Andy Reid, the Kansas City Chiefs head coach, is an offensive-minded head coach. He, he worked his way up through the offensive coordinator path. So basically, he's calling plays. He's the one who draws plays up. It's his offense. And, you know, the enemy is the offensive coordinator in name, but it's really Andy Reid who's holding the keys to the car. So... When Bienemy was with the Chiefs, the Chiefs were averaging 27.5 points per game. Since he's gone, we saw them lose week one. And then week two, we saw them score only 17 points. They're averaging slightly less than 19 points a game. Now, smaller sample size, I know, can't take it away. But the Chiefs, so far without Bienemy, have not looked very effective. And so my question to you, Charles, really, is... Are we reading too much into this? Is the sample size too small? Or is Biennemi more important than the media wanted to give him credit for? That he truly was actually coaching the offense of his team to the elite levels that they were at. And are the Chiefs going to struggle without him? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think that when we talked about the Chiefs in week one, we very much were focusing on the Kelsey injury. We talked about how without Kelsey and... Of course, the fact that Tyreek Hill went over to the Dolphins a while back. They are certainly less potent offensively as a result of that. So I think, I suppose in our heads, week one, we we, we put that down to kind of personnel on the field. But then seeing their performance in week two with Kelsey on the field against a Jags team that, look, they're, they're an okay team, but then I, I wouldn't say they're defensive powerhouses to only go and put, what was it, 16, 17 points against them, it's like that was really surprising to me. 
they just looked to stagnate a lot on offense. They couldn't get things clicking. And so then maybe now we do need to go, well, hang on, is it less about the people on the field? And is this something to do with the movement of the enemy? Likewise, you look at the commanders now, they have been a bit of a joke team in past. And I'm not saying that they've shirked that entirely, but they're 2-0. They're 2-0. Yeah. Who have they played so far? They've played the Cardinals and who else? <laughs> and the Broncos <laughs> in complete defense. So, yes. So, they have played two garbage teams, but they are 2-0. You can only be what's in front yeah. of you. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, they were, yes, you know, garbage teams, but they put up points. Offensively, they looked quite free-flowing. And maybe... The Chiefs' loss is absolutely the commander's gain on this front. So here's a question. End of this season, end of next season, will the enemy finally get a job? Or will people start saying that it's Ron Riviera coaching this Washington commander's team to offensive excellence? Well, this is the thing, isn't it? We'll have to wait and see. But I, look, I'm with you. I mean, if it feels like if ever there was a man that was more deserved of a head coach opportunity... It feels like it would be him. But look, let's see how this season pans out. I do think that this obviously is an incredibly small sample size. We're talking about two games here. Yeah. Let's see how, you know, first half of the season goes at least. And if we're starting to see more of these kind of patterns emerging like this, then maybe you do have to say, oh, maybe this wasn't all Andy Reid's shot calling after all. And maybe Biennemi did have a, a bigger impact than maybe he was given credit for. It's worth keeping an eye on. So just very quickly then, Joe, looking ahead to uh, games that are coming up this week. I mean, for me, Vikings-Chargers seems like the most interesting in terms of where these teams both go from here. Because essentially, at the end of this weekend, one of these teams is going to be 0-3. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. Because after playing the Vikings, the next three games the Chargers have are Raiders, Cowboys, Chiefs. So you don't win against the Vikings and you could end up being 1-5 and five to start the season. Flip side, after playing the Chargers, the Vikings have Panthers, Chiefs. So if the Vikings don't win, they could be looking at 1-5. and five. I'm just going that far for both teams because after that, both teams play the Bears. So then they should snap out of whatever losing <laughs> streak they're in. Oh, there we go. All that's left to do now, Joe, is watch and wait absolutely and i'm sure we'll be talking about it next week speak then joe